Hello and welcome to Gendering Geopolitics, a special edition series of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policies Contours podcast. Each episode will consist of conversations with scholars and practitioners from around the world about issues of gender and international affairs. My name is Emily Prey, and I'm the Director of Gender Policy at the New Lines Institute. Today, I'm joined by Ambassador Beth Fenskock and Weiwei Nu to reflect on the 75th anniversary of the Genocide Convention and to look at what the future holds for genocide prevention and punishment with a gender lens. And I want to quickly give a shout out to our colleague, Julia Coopermink, whose idea it was to have this podcast to commemorate the anniversary. And now to introduce our wonderful guest today, Beth is the Ambassador at Large for Global Criminal Justice in the U.S. Department of State. In this role, she advises the Secretary of State and other department leadership on issues related to the prevention of and response to atrocity crimes, including war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Weiwei is the founder and executive director of the Women Peace Network in Myanmar. She spent seven years as a political prisoner in Burma. Since her release from prison in 2012, Weiwei has dedicated herself to working for democracy and human rights. Thank you both so much for joining me today. It's so great to have you here for my official first podcast recording. And so, Beth, I want to start with you, since we are commemorating the anniversary of the Genocide Convention. Can you give us a short reflection of the past 75 years of the Genocide Convention? And what are some successes and where is there room for growth? Yeah, thanks so much, Emily. It's really great to be here with you, but also with Weiwei, whose work I really admire. Um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say on this important topic. Um, you know, as we know, genocides have been committed for centuries within human society, but the independent legal concept of genocide as an international crime that would be subject to prosecution didn't emerge until the post-World War II period and the horrific events surrounding the Holocaust. The treaty now has attracted widespread ratification. I think it's 150-something states now, um, although enforcement remains a real challenge. The treaty defines the crime. It obliges states to prosecute the crime in either their own courts or before an international tribunal, and it envisions states being engaged in preventative endeavors, although these obligations are framed very vaguely. In terms of prohibited acts, the treaty includes killing members of the group, which of course embodies the colloquial everyday understanding of genocide, but it also prohibits a broader range of acts. This includes the imposition of serious bodily or mental harm on the group, the imposition of conditions of life calculated to destroy the group, and then there are measures aimed at restricting the group's ability to reproduce or the forcible transfer of children out of the group. These are all independent ways in which genocide can be committed. The treaty also contains a dispute resolution provision, which allows contracting states to invoke the International Court of Justice for disputes arising out of the interpretation, application, or fulfillment of the treaty, including, and this is important with respect to state responsibility for genocide. And I imagine Weiwei will discuss that the first case has now been brought under this provision against Myanmar by the Gambia, which is a West African nation. So several shortfalls of this treaty have been identified. One includes the fact that the definition limits the number of protected groups that are um, acknowledged to be potentially the victims of genocide. So only violence against racial, ethnic, religious, or national groups counts, quote unquote, as genocide under the treaty. 
Noticeably absent are political or economic groups, which have often been targeted for extermination. And there's no explicit mention of gender per se, except insofar as the treaty prohibits the imposition of measures intended to prevent births within the group. And this has been interpreted to encompass many forms of sexual violence. In addition, when Lemkin first conceptualized the crime of genocide, um, and he was a Polish jurist who coined the term and really pushed the international community to draft a treaty, he would have included what we would call cultural genocide today. So measures aimed at the destruction of the cultural manifestations of the group, places of worship, artistic expression. As the treaty was being negotiated, however, this idea fell away. And so the treaty really focuses on the physical or biological destruction of the group rather than its cultural erasure. But it is important to note that this is one area that one area where the physical destruction is not required is with respect to the transfer of children. Um, in addition, we've seen in jurisprudence acts of cultural erasure have been proffered before courts as evidence that a particular group is being targeted and being targeted for their destruction. In terms of jurisdiction, there are some weaknesses. Universal jurisdiction, for example, is not specifically mentioned. That said, it's now widely recognized that genocide is subject to universal jurisdiction, and many states have incorporated the prohibition into their domestic codes. We've seen a number of national-level prosecutions for genocide, particularly with respect to the genocide in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. And most recently, there was a very important case in Germany against members of the Islamic State for genocide committed against Yazidis. We've seen the international tribunals prosecuting crimes of genocide very actively. Um, the International Criminal Court does not yet have a case, but um, Omar al-Bashir, who's the deposed president of Sudan, will be prosecuted for that crime once he's brought into custody. As another shortfall, and as I mentioned, the preventative mandate is drafted very vaguely. According to Article 8, contracting parties may, quote, call upon competent organs of the United Nations to take action, close quote. And they're meant to do this under the UN Charter for the prevention and suppression of acts of, of genocide. No specifics are identified. So it's really been left to states to explore what measures might be taken, including, for example, sanctions or weapons embargoes or even humanitarian intervention. The International Court of Justice has ruled that there are preventative obligations on contracting states if they have a capacity to influence events in the state in which genocide is being committed. These obligations, though, still need to be flushed out. So that's a brief sketch of the treaty, what it has accomplished, where it falls short. In terms of room for growth, as I mentioned, much more can be done in terms of enforcement. We need to see more prosecutions at the national and international level. In addition, as an international community, we need to continue to invest in preventative measures to protect vulnerable groups so they can avoid the, the scourge of genocide. I'll stop there. Thanks, Beth. I think that was a really comprehensive and good overview of the Genocide Convention and where we can go from there. I think it's very important how you mentioned while there's widespread ratification of the treaty, that enforcement does still remain a challenge. And we can see this, especially in the case of the Rohingya in Burma. So I want to zoom in on this case where hundreds of thousands of Rohingya, largely women and children, fled the military junta's genocidal campaign in 2017 and were able to set up refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar. But now, in 2023, it's such an intractable situation. There's horrific human rights abuses. There's the creation of Basanchar. It really doesn't look good for the Rohingya. 
So Weiwei, what is lacking in the approach to genocide prevention and punishment in terms of the dignity of survivors? Thank you very much, Emily. It is an honor to be in your podcast alongside uh, Ambassador Shaks. I think when it's come to the situations of Rohingya and protections of uh, victims and survivors, as you described perfectly, the situations in Bangladesh has been deteriorating uh, day by day, especially uh, over the past several years. Since uh, when they've had to flee, um, about 1 million people, or 900,000 people had to flee from Burma in 2017, people uh, had hope and uh, they were, they had a hope that they will be able to seek uh, refuge in Bangladesh and have some breathe and save their life, uh, perhaps uh, stay there. Um, for a little while with dignity after surviving the genocide. But lately, the situation has uh, drastically deteriorated um, where uh, people facing um, so many challenges, including in addition to living in the very overcrowded uh, camps, there is inadequate shelter, obviously, in this very overcrowded camps and limited sanitation facilities and scarce access to clean water, limited access to health care and lack of basic services. I mean, we can somehow say that some basic services have been provided. Um, however, the children are facing disease outbreaks, malnutrition, inadequate educational opportunities, and risks related to neglect and exploitations, as well as violence, including gender-based violence, uh, and risks of child marriage and child labor and human trafficking, etc., so on. At the same time, um, people who were transferred to Bashansha Island uh, having so many challenges, including loneliness, um, mental health, and, and finding themselves in an open prison-like conditions. They cannot basically escape from the island anymore, which is far from the mainland. And if they attempt to leave the island, then they could be caught by the authorities and put in jail. So, you know, hardship, indescribable. In these conditions, I do not want to blame whether Bangladesh or anybody, but I think it's the collective failure of the international community and shortfall of the genocide conventions uh, itself. Um, in addition to what Ambassador has described, I also see at least two major shortfall in it, uh, in the convention itself, and uh, that include one, the victim has very little to no role uh, to bring the case, um, whether at the International Court of Justice or at the ICC. So basically, the victim has uh, very little say when it's come to um, justice and accountability for what uh, they have suffered from the contracting party or the perpetrators. But I would like to focus on the other aspect of the shortfall, which is the convention itself lacking the protections of the victims and survivors, especially after the genocide. In the case of Rohingya, when they flee, uh, after they fled Burma or after they fled the, the genocide. Now, as we described, in addition to the, the serious uh, humanitarian conditions, 
in the uh, camps, the people are not even having basics needs or meeting basics uh, nutrition level, which described in the response Rohingya response plan uh, this year alone, where the need for the food is uh, the need for the Rohingya response is nine hundred and seventy three million dollars. They were only able to raise about three hundred and seventy something million dollars. So there is a huge gap over five hundred million dollars gap has there is a gap of that level of that massive uh, gap uh, for the Rohingya response. So therefore, we have seen over the past um, uh, several months that the deductions of uh, food rations for the Rohingya refugees from $12 to $10 and $10 to $8 per people per month. Uh, you know, $8 or $10 means in the in the Western countries, it's just... <laughs> about the price of a salad or a sandwich, right? And they have to live with this amount of money for a month. And now the good news from $8, so there will be from, by next month, they will be receiving $10 again. Um, so that's a good news. However, this massive gap and the the deteriorating serious conditions in the camps describe that how uh, the international community has failed to protect the victims and survivors of genocide and how the Genocide Convention itself does not provide a room uh, for the victims and survivors to be protected uh, after the genocide or post-genocide, especially when they are in the second country. Um, In the case of Burma um, and Myanmar, um, the International Court of Justice um, has issued uh, provisional measures to protect the Rohingya, but that provisional measures only applies to the uh, contracting party like uh, Burma, not the Bangladesh. Therefore, now where majority of Rohingya are the victims and survivors are now living in Bangladesh and lacking uh, the basics needs uh, or, or protections of their basics needs, and which is, I think, um, a huge question that. Uh, the the world and the the international need to be asking for. How are we providing protection to these these victims and survivors, not just around the securities and physical protection, safety, et cetera, but also the minimum, the food and adequate nutrition. How are you going to provide them? These are not the survivors and victims or refugees that uh, just left regular conflict, but these are victims of genocide and victims and survivors of genocide. And, you know, there's a huge responsibility and another level of question that international community should be asking to provide uh, protection to this this community. I think this discussion is not happening at this till today. And I think we need to be um, asking these questions more and more and raising this question. Thank you so much, Weiwei. Um, I think it's it's so important and people are talking a little bit more about this now, but to have a survivor-centered approach when you're thinking about atrocity crimes and especially hearing from you how the victims have had little say in justice and accountability, I think that's an important call to the international community that we need to do better. And we so we can see from how the junta 
they perpetrated their genocide against the Rohingya in 2017 and before. It was very gendered and specifically targeted women's sexual and reproductive organs and separating men and women based on their perceived roles in society. We know that genocide is a gendered crime, and we know based on research from the Global Justice Center and from New Lines that women are more likely to survive genocides as victims of non-lethal acts and thus be considered witnesses rather than victims themselves. So Beth, what do we need to do to move forward in these interpretations of who is a victim of genocide? Because this has huge implications for justice, accountability, support, reparations, and how can the United States lead on this? Thanks for that question. And and before I answer it, I just want to acknowledge that I have been to Cox's Bazaar and Weiwei has really very accurately captured the full scope of this tragedy. Those people are living in very difficult conditions. And I want to acknowledge the difficulty that Bangladesh faces absorbing what is now upwards of a million individuals from neighboring Myanmar. But at the same time, there's definitely much more that we can all do in order to bring some dignity um, to the lives of those individuals. When I was there, I met with many women victims And what I found just so remarkable was that they all still have some measure of faith in the international community and in the ability for us to deliver justice. Um, After all they have experienced, they still held that faith. And they are all very actively tracking the various pathways to justice that we know exist. The International Court of Justice, which has been mentioned, the ICC is exercising jurisdiction, and there are a number of cases that are at various stages in national courts. And these, while these justice efforts really capture our imagination, I think Weiwei's point is incredibly important. Justice still will mean very little where basic needs are not being met. So we need to be able to do both. So when it comes to the question about gender and, and women and girls as victims, the treaty, as I mentioned, does not include groups defined by their gender as specifically protected groups. But we have seen in jurisprudence and in scholarship that we know that genocide can have a gender dynamic or a gender logic. And so individuals who are identified with the different sexes are often subjected to differential treatment in a larger campaign of violence against a protected group. A a classic pattern is that men and boys may be seen as more of a physical threat to the aggressor group, so they may be killed um, and subject to outright killing, whereas women and girls may be subjected to um, sexual violence, including sexual slavery, although we've also seen sexual violence being committed against men and boys as well. Importantly, the Rwanda Tribunal prosecuted acts of sexual violence in which the victim did survive, um, and these were prosecuted as genocide. So that confirmed that rape can be a predicate act for genocide. This enabled those survivors to speak directly to their experience. The story is often told that the prosecutors originally didn't charge rape as a predicate act of genocide, and it only took the spontaneous emergence of testimony by survivors when they were sitting on the stand for the judges to call for the proceedings to be halted and for the prosecutors to go back and consider amending those indictments. So there was a real blind spot there. That blind spot, fortunately, has now been removed. And I think we're seeing much more um, attention to looking at the gendered aspects of genocide. We're going to see this, I think, with future prosecutions involving the Yazidi genocide. Many men and boys were killed, but, but many women were taken into sexual slavery. And indeed, there are still women and girls missing today and, and, and being found in some of the camps where ISIS members are, are being detained. 
So we know that this can be prosecuted as genocide as well, given the clear intent of the Islamic State to eliminate the Yazidi people. The fact that there may be many uh, survivors of genocide, including women and girls who survived sexual violence and other forms of gender-based harm, really highlights the importance of rehabilitation, including physical, psychosocial, and economic. This was Weiwei's point. As an international community, we must also invest in this work to allow those survivors to heal and to ultimately return to a life path of dignity and of self-determination. Now, in terms of what governments can do, including my own, um, there's so many things we can do to really add content uh, and heft to the Genocide Convention, which is quite short. I, I read it again this morning. It's, it's a very quick read. Um, and so we need to think about how we can add content to some of the promises made by that treaty. So first, we must continue to invest in documentation to fully understand the nature of violence, including its gendered components, so that we can craft effective preventative interventions and also prepare for and launch um, credible accountability exercises. In addition, we have to make sure that the mandates of investigative bodies, such as commissions of inquiry and fact-finding missions, include a gender component so that those dynamics are not overlooked as they have so often been in the past. As justice efforts are pursued, whether in domestic or international tribunals, prosecutors and investigators must take a gendered approach and include in-house expertise on working with survivors. And this includes training around trauma and the impact of trauma on the ability of survivors to participate in a justice process. We can also help by investing in civil society organizations. Many of them are survivor-led in order to help accompany survivors through a justice process, which we know can be incredibly rigorous, exhausting, and re-traumatizing. So having support persons who have the well-being of the witnesses um, as they're at top of mind is incredibly important. There's also many practical ways that we can assist. So um, there was a, a group of Rohingya women who traveled from Cox's Bazaar to Argentina to give live testimony before a judge. There is an open investigation there under universal jurisdiction. And those women were invited to testify. This involved a lot of logistics, including just the simple ability to find travel documents and to work it out between the various relevant embassies to enable those women to travel, give their testimony, and then safely return to their you know, places of refuge now in Cox's Bazaar. So as governments, as donors, and all of our programming and foreign assistance, we should be asking grant applicants to describe how they're going to incorporate a gendered perspective and a trauma-informed perspective into their work so that they're ensuring that this these issues are not overlooked. So those are just some quick ideas about what more the international community can do in order to ensure that the gendered aspects of, of genocide are, are, are top of mind. Thank you so much, Beth. And I'm glad that you mentioned dignity and the real human consequences of genocide, because that leads right into my next question for Weiwei. Because genocide, it's not its not just one moment in time. It doesn't end when a war ends, for example. And I think one of the biggest critiques of international law and perhaps the Genocide Convention is that historically, these types of treaties and laws have often been created by the world's most privileged, and sometimes practice, practitioners can forget the human faces of atrocity crimes. So Weiwei, how can we maintain a human focus when thinking about genocide prevention and punishment and adhering to the points laid out in the Genocide Convention? 
This was this is a great question. The Genocide Convention, the act of genocide, the crimes of genocide itself is directed to human groups, right? Different identity-based human groups. And um, and it should always be reminded and uh, considered in every steps of the, the, the justice processes. Um, now, when it's come to Burma case and Rohingya case, um, we've seen, um, we definitely have some progress uh, over the past several years. Um, we have a case before ICJ and we have an investigations um, at International Criminal Court and uh, we also have several universal jurisdiction case. Uh, when it's come to justice uh, and accountability, we can say that there has been some improvement looking at these cases. However, we can also say that these cases seems to be very far from the people on the ground. Uh, the people are not uh, feeling that these processes are connected to them or they can actually connect to the case and 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 feel the progress or take part in the pro, uh, processes at all. So I think um, there is uh, a room uh, to minimize this gap, and, um, and there should be a creative uh, tools to minimize uh, these gaps uh, as much as possible. At the end of the day, these crimes, uh, as we uh, discuss, is is directed or 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 directly <laughs> linked to the to the group themselves and to the victims and survivors as a group, uh, a Rohingya, right? So I think there is a little bit of, not miss opportunity, I would say, uh, negligence around that people tend to forget the, who are the victims and survivors, whether these processes are being connected to the larger, the victims uh, uh, and survivor groups or not. So I think, I think, you know, that's that's for me of uh, someone who has been um, advocating for the uh, justice and accountability for my community. Uh, feel a little odd and and sad in a way to see how these processes are making progress and how being detached from the community themselves. And I can also see that there are some individuals' involvement, very very small number involvement, and for example, testimony. Uh, before the uh, Argentina court. However, uh, I think although some of the uh, act of genocide uh, may be committed to the individual or violated against the individual, but at the end of the day, these crimes are connected to the larger uh, group as Rohingya. So I think uh, the the people who uh, involve in the case itself should find a way to engage with their broader um, community themselves. Uh, in a way to trust, uh, inform the processes or get them involved in the processes, and I think which is which is critical. But then, when you talk about the uh, justice processes in general, the case before the ICJ and the criminal accountability uh, processes are different. For us, the case before the International Court of Justice is very very important because. At some point, we're hoping that, that these cases may lead uh, to the responsibility of the state so that uh, our hope is to uh, compensate or to repair, to provide remedy to the group as a whole for as Rohingya, not just a criminal accountability for the key perpetrators, but also what the state uh, should do 
to repair or to to provide remedy to the Rohingya as a group. Uh, since this is the the ICJ case is heavily uh, focused on the state responsibility, so for us this case is very important. However, we are also seeing that um, the the ICJ's uh, statute does not provide any room for the communities or victims direct involvement in the case itself. So we are a little frustrated about that process as well. And in the case of Rohingya, the participating state, the state representing the victims are not, um, the Gambia is not the state that Rohingya directly belong to. Although we trust in their intentions and and interests of the Gambia. However, there may be some gap between the interests of the Rohingya community and victims and, and survivors and the participating state in ICJ. So we, there's two ways I think this can be fixed. One, perhaps I'm not sure whether it will be extremely difficult for us to claim for the amendment of the statute. Uh, in this case, perhaps the courts or the judges can come up with a creative tool to have a more uh, direct victims and survivors participations in the processes. Um, and second way is perhaps the um, the legal team from Gambia could find ways to, to proactively engage with the Rohingya. So, you know, we understand limitations of the case and we understand uh, limit, limitations of the ICJ's procedures and jurisdictions. However, I think there is um, there is still a way for the ICJ's and, and parties involved to try to proactively engage with the victims and survivors community in the community. And when it's come to the uh, criminal accountability, especially when it's come to uh, ICC, ICC has uh, actually several mechanisms to engage with the victims and survivors. I think it's a matter of implementations of these uh, mechanisms, uh, procedures. Um, it's it's a matter of interest of the ICC itself to engage with the with the uh, with the victims and survivors group from providing uh, you know support uh, to consultations, regular consultations with the victim communities, whether the right victims uh, or the civil society groups representing the victims. And as well as basically perhaps like uh, international community find uh, victims groups, their own um, counselors or their own lawyers to represent international criminal court. Um, although this is uh, in the, um, the criminal accountability process or criminal court and it, it's only able to, it, it will prosecute the individual perpetrators, uh, especially the leaders of the, the command responsibility or the heads, the, the, whoever give directives or whoever ordered these crimes. Um, but I think still, we uh, the criminal accountability is the key element of uh, bringing justice for the community. So, and, and I'm glad that the ICC has more mechanisms on on victims and community engagement, which can give some human focus uh, prosecutions. And we need to basically encourage them to implement them. And as it is important for the uh, victim groups uh, to uh, have a effective criminal accountability process, I, I do believe that they this will benefit both the international criminal justice as well as the victims and, and survivors uh, survivor groups such as Rohingya. Thank you, Weiwei. And I think that you made such a significant point that we don't want these international legal processes 
to be detached from the communities themselves. And thank you for your perspective and all of the advocacy work that you're doing on behalf of the Rohingya. And now before we end, I just wanted to ask for both of you, is there anything that I didn't ask that you wish that I had or any last points that you would like to make? Well, maybe I'll I'll go first. Um, this was a tremendous discussion. I was really honored to be a part of it. And I just want to emphasize and underscore what Weiwei just said about the importance of the lawyers working on these cases, not losing sight of who ultimately is um, is it's what what ultimately is at stake here and who ultimately is impacted upon by these proceedings. Um, we can be very captured by the legal nuances and the arguments that we make. But there are real human beings that that really um, you know, are care, care very deeply about what is happening. And so making that human connection is incredibly important and ensuring that the survivor's interests are being reflected, not only in the legal theories and the cases, but in the pr very procedures that their voices are being heard and that they have an impact and that they're being communicated with so that they understand where the law is, why there are delays, all of that. That, that kind of communication is really important for us as lawyers who can be very captured by what's happening it's sitting in The Hague and elsewhere. Yes, definitely. Thank you for underscoring that. Weiwei, do you have any final comments? Um, sure. And thank you, Ambassador, for highlighting that important point. And um, I think in relation to that, I think it is also uh, extremely important to uh, support victims and survivors led effort from the documentations to the uh, justice processes as a whole, not only for the international accountability, but also domestic accountabilities, especially when it's come to the transitional justice. The Rohingya groups like Rohingya, especially the victims and survivors of genocides, could be in a situation sometimes they, they find themselves extremely challenging to stand up for themselves. So I think it is it is utmost important to support the victims and survivors-led initiatives um, from documentation to the bringing litigation to, to, to the entire justice processes, memorializations and reparations itself. Um, so I think that's one message I think we will, I want to deliver today and continue to deliver, I, I, I guess, in the future. And lastly, around the, to reiterate or to reemphasize on what uh, Ambassador earlier mentioned around the community engagement and uh, victims' participations and expertise uh, around having expertise and knowledge around the, around the context. I think it's extremely important because uh, the most of the time, the experts, the lawyers in the international justice processes are usually from from Western countries, let's say. And often these cases happened in other part of the world. In the case of Rohingya, I can see there is a huge gap, uh, a knowledge gap between the content and the ground reality and the understanding of the legal experts or experts involved in investigations and et cetera. Um, when I say gap, knowledge gap doesn't mean their expertise, but uh, in fact, the nuances, the culture, the custom, the tradition, the language, all of it. And I fear that, you know, there will be a lot of missed opportunities and losing sight or loss in translations, nuances, loss in translations when, when it's come to, to these investigations and justice processes. So I am hoping that these uh, mechanisms and courts started to realize 
the huge gap between the contextual background and this um and uh, con- um the 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 customs and traditions that we have and um, the legal translation that they or analysis that they would make on uh, in their offices so equipping themselves with the etiquette um resources and expertise that uh, can accurately translate or describe or present the the suffering or the experiences of the victims and survivors to the investigations or or court proceeding would be i think immensely important and valuable for us to be able to seek uh, a more effective uh, justice uh, as we pursue broader justice for the community Thank you so much, Beth and Weiwei, for sharing your insights on gender and genocide, and particularly looking at the Rohingya in Burma, and for taking the time to join me in this episode of Gendering Geopolitics. Thanks to our audience for tuning in, and please head to the newlinesinstitute.org for more information and to explore our other podcasts and publications.